Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. I'm really excited to talk today to John Beaton, who happens to be a colleague of mine at the Sustainable Farming Association and also a farmer up in Duluth, Minnesota. We're going to talk all about his farm and what he's doing up there, and, and I'm just really excited to get into it. So, John, welcome to the Dirt Rich Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Happy to be here. Yeah, so uh, my favorite way to get these all started off is just getting a history, uh, you know, kind of some context related to how you got to where you are. And so if you wouldn't mind just telling me, did you come from a farm? How did you get into the farming business? Sure. You know, I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in the country, um, kind of outside the Fargo-Moorhead, uh, Detroit Lakes area, uh, western Minnesota. So I, I've, I've always enjoyed living in the country and stuff, but I went to, uh, you know, came up to Duluth to go to college at uh, the University of Minnesota here and where I majored in uh, anthropology. And so I had an awesome professor who studied food systems and how a, pop, a given population feeds itself. And so that, um, you know, learning a bit about that in like a modern context, but also learning about like historically how, have, you know, how do traditional societies kind of organize their food systems and feed themselves. Um, and that just kind of got me philosophically orientated orientated towards farming and interested in farming and kind of working the land and having a relationship with the land. And, and so then through that, through a couple of class projects and just my time at, at UMD there, I got connected to the local, you know, some local farmers. And so then I did an internship at a, a bigger uh, CSA vegetable farm where we grew <clears throat> on about I think at that time it was about seven acres of vegetables, which is pretty sizable. It was about 115 yeah. member CSA. <laughs> so kind of one of the bigger operations in our area. Mm -hmm. And so I interned one season and then the following two, I lived on site in the milk house. This 12 by 12, it was an old dairy <laughs> park. So it was a 12 by 12 concrete block building with a wood stove and wow. a picket coming out of the floor and that's all I had. And, really? And uh, so I spent a couple summers there and I just, I really enjoyed it. And Did you live there year round in that? Like not, not year round. In the okay. winter time I would, go, I would go live in town and sure. that time I was spending my winters working in a bakery. Mm. I always worked in restaurants before I, I got into and food service stuff before I got into farming like that. That's part of part of the journey too. Is that I was a prep cook. I my, that was my first job when I was sixteen. I was cooking food in a, a scratch restaurant and mm -hmm. learned a lot about how to prepare food from scratch. And then I got introduced to the fresh vegetables, which just made it was just a perfect union there. Sure. <laughs> and wow. kind of fell back in love with cooking and things like this. And but then my final season there at Northern Northern Harvest Farm that was the name. Uh, my final season there. Rick, uh, he let me use a space there about 30 by 90 to plant my, to plant a garden and start my business, Fairhaven Farm. Wow. And so from there, I, I, I started the, uh, the business with seven CSA members and I worked this little plot there and I, it was great because I would watch Rick and help. I mean, basically I worked four days a week for Rick and then I'd have Friday and the weekend to do my own thing. And 
And so I, when we planted broccoli in the big fields, I planted broccoli in my little field and it was a perfect situation to kind of learn and do at the same time. Sure. Yeah. And so Rick really helped me set the stage for the foundation like that, uh, for the Mm -hmm. the business. And, and then the following season, I moved spaces. I got, I was able to use some land a little bit closer to town so I could live in town and move out of the milk house. And uh, so then I expanded the CSA a little bit, moved up to about 12, 13 members. And then during that same time uh, uh, that I was there, I, I met my now wife, Emily, and we both had ambitions and we both were looking for farms when, when we met. Mm-hmm. And so that was in 2015. And then 2016, we were able to link up with the previous landowner of the farm we now own. And um, we were able to rent from her for. Uh, about nine months until we finally bought the farm in 2017. That's awesome. So I got a few questions kind of based on all of that. And I want to get a little more into a few pieces of that, but a CSA, uh, community supported agriculture. Can you tell me why you chose to go that route of, you know, that kind of business model? It's, it's unique to, it seems like vegetable production is primarily, and there's a few people doing meat CSAs, but tell me why you chose that route versus another method of selling or marketing. Well, you know, I really just went along with it because that's what I, you know, that was the primary uh, market for the farm I was on. And that's what I learned. You know, mm-hmm. I had no other exposure to any other kind of marketing really other than the CSA at that, at Northern Harvest there. They would, they had wholesale accounts where they would sell to the co-op grocery store uh, and also a couple of restaurants. So I saw a little bit of that, but really going with the CSA, it made sense because like I say, this is what I was used to, but it also, it allowed me to connect directly to my customers like that. And I'm kind of a relationship orientated person anyways. And I like meeting new people and building relationships and and networking and stuff. So um, when it came time to finding my customers, like I was, it was while I found them in all kinds of different ways, you know, my first set of customers, uh, the CSA members, you know, one I met in my farm beginnings class, Bill and Dev. Now here they, you know, I met them in 2013. Oh, yeah, 2013, I met them. We took farm beginnings together. And now they're our neighbors. Now they live five miles down the road and they have, they have, uh, cattle and sheep and and chickens that they raise on a big ranch so kind of funny how that worked but yeah uh and i met another guy uh sitting at uh sir ben's this bar and i was sitting next to him <laughs> talking to him and and here he is the lutheran kind of bishop type person they mean this person in charge of the several churches in the area and they sure. became my member and Huh. which led to me having a CSA drop point at one of the churches he worked with. Mm-hmm. And like, so just building those connections in a, in a kind of organic way was, it was just kind of like a, it was just kind of an, a, a natural process. Sure. So the, the land aspect of it, cause I know that's a challenge with so many beginning farmers is finding access to land. And there's, you actually do some work with this in addition through the navigators program. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit as well, but how did you specifically come across a land base? How are you able to finance it to, you know, pay for it while you were building up your farm base? Maybe you already had fortunately 
with previous years established enough of a farm base to cash flow it. But how did you make that all a reality? Well, it, kind of an interesting story. I mean, really, when I was at Rick's, I had a pretty big debate in my mind there as I transitioned away from there because Rick was willing to give me more land to use. I mean, mm-hmm. we, he said, we'll uh, open up a whole field for you or whatever. So he mm-hmm. gave me the option of sure. building and expanding right there, but it just wasn't the time for that to happen. And so I, I was thankful that I could access land through this mentor type situation because that's how Rick got his start. He he interned at another farm nearby, and then he bought a farm just a mile down the road. He passed on, and he let me use some land in so that I could get the business going. But, you know, um, when it came time to actually finding a farm and buying a farm, that took a lot of uh, pieces to come together. One of the major things was finding Emily and, and linking up with Emily because she was on that same path to, to she wanted a farm too. And so we were able to combine our resources. The same- did she yes. want to farm the same way? Uh, okay. Yeah, I think so. Yep, yep, yep. She worked on a smaller kind of scale okay. vegetable farm as well. Yep, yep. So she was okay. she was into having a farm business. In fact, she started her own business selling microgreens, and and okay. I had my business selling vegetables. We were selling at the farmers market. And that's how we met. So it took you know us com- joining together, combining forces and resources to make it go. You know, and then another thing that helped us find our current space is um, we were able to connect directly with the landowner, the mm. previous landowner here now. So we just happened to have a mutual friend. Me and Emily were were talking. You know, we were going through all kinds of scenarios of do we buy a house in town and buy land and build it up slowly over time. We ran all these different scenarios, but it took finding Linda through a mutual friend um, that really just pushed us down the path run. So um, the previous owner of our farm was a vegetable farmer and she had been here on this property for over 30 years and had built a bunch of infrastructure, you know, a big 12 foot deer fence, a greenhouse, a bar in the house, a shop and garage, everything. She had spent her whole life building this farm up. And then we were able to connect with her through, like I say, a mutual friend. And, you know, she was just getting to a point where she couldn't, she was living out here by herself. She couldn't keep up with it all and didn't want to see it kind of fall apart because she did a really good job of keeping everything up and, and keeping everything maintained. And so it was kind of a unique situation in that me and Emily went out and along with Emily's parents, they played a big role in, in our land access journey because Emily and her parents had talked about buying a farm together for mm-hmm. quite some time. And so they kind of were, were part of the part of the big package, really. Sure, sure. So uh, we all went out and came out here to the farm and had dinner with Linda and talked about our dreams and our goals and what what our plan was and basically ended the night with a handshake to move forward, not knowing how, but we're going to figure out a way to buy this farm from her. And we went through all kinds of trials and tribulations to get to a point to where we actually bought it and took some pretty, in hindsight, pretty wild risks, but it worked. So we ended up moving here. There is the, the home is split where there's an apartment downstairs that she rented out. So we rented from her from the end of December in 2016 until July of 2017. So 
we rented from Linda while we were negotiating how to buy the farm and putting the pieces together to buy the farm. And so we got this unique perspective of this landowner kind of giving up and kind of like grieving over the loss of her letting go of this farm and she's upstairs and we, you know, we, I mean, we're talking to her every day about all this stuff. Yeah. And, and then, I mean, before we even had bought the farm, we worked the field and we established a couple beds and, and we ran a CSA that season, which was incredibly risky because there wasn't even any guarantee that we would actually end up buying the farm. We didn't mm-hmm. use a real estate agent. We used just a, a real estate lawyer Sure, that was um, helping to facilitate the sale. But through that, we were able to build a level of trust with Linda that that wouldn't otherwise have been possible. I mean, we proved to her that we're here, we're serious about farming, and that was her that was her kind of red line. She said, "I'm not going to sell to anybody if they're not going to farm because yeah. I didn't put up my life work into this, and I'm not going to watch my fields go to weeds and mm-hmm. my buildings fall apart." So we were able to build a really strong relationship between us and Linda, the landowner. And so now at that time too, I was also working full time as a prep cook in another restaurant, which was very fortunate. It was a good position with a good wage. And Emily was working at the co-op as the graphic designer for the co-op, the grocery store. And so we had both two years of employment. And so when it came time to actually finance the farm, the business records from my from me starting the farm helped, but it was really more that we both had stable employment for a couple of years, and we just took out a traditional mortgage. It was not a farm, uh, sure. You know, it wasn't through the FSA or anything. It was just a traditional mortgage, and we were there again, able to do that because of our other jobs and because of Emily's parents and my parents. They both financially kind of supported us and helped us buy the farm. To where now currently, uh, and it's where we're at now is Emily's folks own the farm with us. We're all joint owners. And for the past three years, they had lived with us downstairs. They, we swapped, we moved upstairs, they moved in downstairs. And, and now we're at a point to where we're kind of trying to refinance the farm so that we can remove them from the deed so that we can take on the full kind of debt load. And now it is the farm business itself, which is supporting that. So about 90% of our income comes from farm enterprises. So so it was a heck of a journey to get here. And we're very thankful for the different uh, advantages and privileges that we had from help, from friends, family, everything helped us get here. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. It sounds like a pretty kind of dream situation. (laughs) I mean, it lined up really the stars for everybody that both this Linda, the the previous owner, I'm sure, I mean, she made it clear that was a goal of hers to see it passed on and managed in a way that she saw fit and, and you guys to find the opportunity with the infrastructure. That's unique. Um, but it's it's pretty awesome. And as you work with other farmers through this Land Navigators program, if you want to mention or talk a little bit about that, how do you, I mean, is this a common kind of a thing that you can find partnerships to make them line up that way? Or how do you typically work with people to line up land as you work with them? Right. Well, you know, as soon as we had bought the farm, I kind of had, you know, that was a, it was a life changing experience to see all of this through and to sit and recognize truly how fortunate we were to have this and to be in that situation where everything did kind of line up. So I kind of made it, like a little pet project to figure out 
how, how, how can I help other people do that same thing? Because fully recognizing that not everyone has the same advantages and privileges that I have. So how can I then reach out and, and help people in, this, in much of the same way that our friends and family helped us? How can, how can I then be the conduit for, for help for other farmers? So through that ambition, I, I learned of the Land Access Navigator program uh, through Renewing the Countryside. And I went to a, uh, a conference talking about the, a land access conference that Renewing the Countryside was a partner in. And as we listened to like a little recap of the program, I just raised my hand and I said, how can I do this? How can I be a navigator? Because I'm trying to do this on my own with no resources or help. And it just so happened that according to their kind of grant funding thing, they had some extra funds available and they were able to put me and a handful of other people uh, through a series of trainings to get them to be navigators as well. And so I brought to that then my perspective of going through this entire uh, land access journey where I learned so much. I mean, we learned, we, we were working directly with a real estate lawyer. So we got an inside scoop of here's the documents. Here's what needs to happen. Here's how, here's the, the, the insider look of kind of like negotiating between landowner and, and uh, someone trying to purchase. And, and so I feel like I'm able to bring a lot of that to that work. And basically that's just, that's just what it is. Uh, folks can come to me and become a, well, it's, I guess I call them clients. I mean, people become my client and then they can work with me on a variety of issues. Uh, really just depends on where that person is in their land access journey. Maybe they're ready to start searching for financing. Maybe they just need a business plan. Maybe they want to lease, rent, own, whatever, wherever you're at, I can meet you there with my uh, uh, kind of skill set and experience. And if I don't know the answer, it's great because Renewing the Countryside has put together a land access hub where it's a mix of partners of all kinds of skill sets from real estate lawyers to real estate agents to bankers to all kinds of people. So it's like, if I can't provide a good answer, I can find someone who will. Uh, who can and and also I work within just a given geographic area that I'm familiar with. I have and I have personal connections and business connections and professional connections with people in this area, and so I can provide a kind of a unique experience for a beginning farmer who's searching for land tenure like that. It's a really neat program, and you refer to them as clients. But just for clarification, is there a cost or a fee at all to participate in this program? No, no, no cost on behalf of the farmer. Nope. It is all free um, through this grant funding, through Renewing the Countryside. I'm compensated for my hours that I put into the work and, and whatever I'm doing with, whether I'm communicating with the clients or holding a workshop or whatever, I'm able to then kind of bill for those hours and get compensated, which allows me so much more freedom because... I can then pursue this work and not have it be just a, a, a side project because I'm just able to devote more time to it really. Yeah. Yeah. And it, exactly. I mean, you're a busy person. Your time should be compensated. It's just great that, uh, that that's an offering that you, that is out there. So there's people, you know, funding to fund people like you to help them and that it's not a cost to the land or to the land seeker, I guess. Right. Um, really neat 
program. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. I, I want to get back a little bit towards the, the farm now that you've built um, or you're building. It's I'm sure a constant journey, like every farm you in the summer, I think it was 2016, you, you were able to purchase this farm. Yeah. Uh, what happens then? You're, you're still building your, your client base, your customer base, but you know, start mm-hmm. there and, and walk us through where you are today. Sure. Yeah. Well, the biggest challenge that we faced, you know, once we bought the property amongst other things was, um, well, opening up the field, Linda had built a a 12 foot deer fence around about just about two acres, but hadn't really done much with the field. And so it, it had basically grown over to sod. I mean, it was just like, it was just like opening up a new field basically. And so that first season we, we, we had very minimal tools, very minimal equipment. Uh, we had a broad fork and a couple hoes, and we opened up about four or five of our beds and established those literally by hand uh, and dug out mountains of quack grass. That's the primary weed that oh we were gosh. dealing with is this quack grass. And, <laughs> and that's not easy back, to kill. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I look back to that time and I, and I wonder how truly we even did it, but us setting out doing that there again, I'll just say it, it proved to Linda, we were serious. We were going to do this. We were going to farm. We're not going to let anything stop us. So, so opening up the field was a challenge, but then we discovered through the market gardener, this, this JM 40 air, this, this guy in Canada who, who has popularized this idea of market gardening. Been, I had read his book and was reading his book at the time. And so I knew kind of what we were trying to set up. And, um, and then we started laying out black plastic tarps to solarize the field. And so we laid out a bunch of these tarps and uh, it's just six millimeter black plastic. I mean, we bought it from Menards in 20 by a hundred foot sheets and let that plastic sit for a whole year from spring to spring. And we peeled it back and it was like a miracle. The quack grass had died. Like it huh. terminated 95% of the quack grass. So then we just started opening that field up in successions each year, opening up more and more to a point to where now I'm trying to remember even myself. So let's see, <coughs> 2016, so it would have been 2000, the season of 2017 and 18 we scaled up more and and we've been sitting at 50 members since i think about 2018 and now we have well we have still under an acre in production currently and i've just laid out more tarps this year which once we get those into production next year we'll be at just about an acre of production and so the csa has been a you know, from the start, a big part of the farm because we want that direct connection. I've had several members who have followed me from the very start, which is amazing. That's just amazing to get that direct support from people and there. They believe in me enough to kind of keep supporting us year after year. But then the, so the CSA is one component of, the, of, of our farm business. And we've kind of intentionally gone at a kind of slower pace with that, knowing that it's going to take time to build the soil uh, and it's going to take time to extract the amount of value and vegetables out of there that the land is able to produce because we need to build that fertility and build that soil up because we're growing very intensely on that space. But then in 2018, 
the same year we kind of scaled the CSA, another opportunity kind of fell in our lap. So at that time, Emily was working at the co-op as the graphic designer and the restaurant I was working at was on its way to close. So my job was going to come to an end. So the first of the year, January 1st, I didn't have a job in 2018. But just before that, the co-op had approached Emily and said, the co-op buys in starter plants at the beginning of the year and sells them kind of like a little, like a greenhouse type business. Mm -hmm. The woman that had been supplying those plants had done so for the past, I think it was like 12 or 15 years. And she turned 73 and decided, no, I'm going to slow, I'm going to cut back a little bit. And she dropped that account. So they approached Emily and I, and just because kind of they, they knew Emily from working there and they said, Hey, you guys got a farm. Do you want to grow these starter plants? And we thought, well, I had no intention at all of starting a greenhouse business, Yeah. but we ran the numbers and, and it came out to where if we grew those starter plants and we scaled the CSA, I could quit my job and just jump into it and try it full time. And so we said, okay, let's try it. And we bought a used greenhouse. Oh my gosh. We bought a used greenhouse down in uh, St. Paul uh, for 800 bucks. And we ripped it out of the ground in the middle of, I think it was October or November. We pulled this thing out of the ground and we had to have plants delivered the next spring. And so in February of that year, we thought, okay, how the heck are we going to do this? We don't have no idea. So I worked out the crop plan. And then February, we had a streak of warm days where some snow melted and we snow blowed the perimeter where that greenhouse would sit. <laughs> and we rented a hammer drill and bored holes through the frost. <laughs> and Emily's dad took all day. We we drilled like 32 holes in the frost. And I tell you, wow. man, that frost is harder than concrete. For <laughs> That's it incredible. About, it about spun me around a couple times. And, but we were able to get the hoops up, got the hoops mm -hmm. up, put the plastic on, thought about the whole thing. And he built some tables. And from the get-go, I didn't really want to use propane. I didn't want to just put in propane in it because that's the standard is just dump propane into the building and for heating it. Sure. And so we bought this secondhand wood-fired appliance that's made to go in a house that just blows hot air. And man, that was insane. Me and Emily, we basically attached this hoop house structure to the deep winter greenhouse that Linda had built. Deep winter greenhouse is basically an insulated greenhouse on three sides with big glass panels facing the south. It would warm up and hold heat in the winter time, but it wasn't big enough for production. So we needed that high tunnel. And so we would, we put that wood fired appliance in this little breezeway we built between the deep winter and the high tunnel, and it would blow hot air into the high tunnel and it kind of worked. And, but we ultimately ended up, we had to, we had to sleep out in the deep winter greenhouse uh, and get up every two hours to put wood in the firebox to keep the heat going in the greenhouse. And oh my God, we shuffled plants back and forth and like, it was insane. But the, we ended up producing some really nice starter plants, some really nice tomato plants. And we, then we built this relationship with the co-op and mm. that account has then enabled us to kind of build the rest of the business. And the same woman that ran that account previously uh, that supplied those plants now, as, as time has gone by, 
she has then passed on the rest of her accounts to us by suggesting that we grow in her place. So now this year we were able to take over the Duluth Community Garden plant sale, big plant sale that the Southern nonprofit does. And we were able to supply the co-op in Virginia with plants. And then those two things enabled us to kind of like do our own pre-ordered plant sale. And so then this year we did tear down the old high tunnel and got rid of the old uh, wood-fired appliance. And we put up a much nicer structure, more insulated. And I was able to set up a wood-fired boiler to heat this. So we're still heating with wood, which is very unique. I've not seen anybody else around here do that um, with a boiler system like this. And still, so, so now we're able to still uh, get through the season without burning propane. And sure. we have a much nicer, bigger space. And lots of demand. We're finding lots of demand for the starter plants to such an extent now that the greenhouse is actually generating more income than the CSA. There were about 50-50, but now the greenhouse is overtaking that by just a little bit. Yeah. One so thing I'm yeah. I'm noticing as you're talking is your ability to, a lot of people would maybe just say, you know, be in the right place at the right time, but I'm convinced that's not entirely the truth. You're a networker. You built relationships <laughs> that get you into positions to take it, not take advantage of, but to to have opportunities uh, come in your way. And it's something that, as I've learned over the last few months of working with you, is just something that you're very good and intentional about. Would you agree that your your relationship building and networking has been an important part of getting to where you are and having a lot of these opportunities? I would say fall in your lap, but they really haven't just fallen in your lap. It's been intentional. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, no, I, I, I think a lot of our success is down truly to other people. In fact, all of our successes is dependent on other people for sure. I mean, every bit of good fortune in one's life comes from other people. I mean, you go to the grocery store and you buy groceries. Well, it's because someone picked that thing Maybe it's far away, but it still came to you. Like you, we are so interdependent on others. And if you don't put yourself out there and if you don't tell your story, you, you're not creating an opportunity for someone to benefit you or, or be generous with you. So that's one thing that I always tell my land access clients is that you have to tell your story. If you don't tell your story, no one will provide you anything. No one yeah. will know you're trying to be a farmer. Mm-hmm. So as as we've gone along and and as we explained to linda the previous landowner uh we want to be a farmer okay well that that was the key that enabled us even to keep pursuing that option you know uh, we went to the other woman that had grown starter plants for the co-op as we were getting this all kind of set up we went and visited her and asked her and said geez, Barb, do you think we can do this? Here's our space. Here's what we got. What can we do? Like, and it wasn't a competitive thing. It wasn't a, we're going to do it better than her and this and that. We like, we got her blessings and, and tried to learn from her. And then through that, then, well, hey, now she's going to pass on this other stuff because she knows we're committed and we're going to do a good job. And and then even to finding the same members. I mean, we we that's all through telling our story and, and mm-hmm. saying what our mission is what we're trying to do and, and, and things like this. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's networking and building relationships that it should never, ever be overlooked. That's the f- foundation of our success for sure. Yeah. 
And I for I had forgotten what you just said there. You had said in a past time that I met you, met you but it uh, makes so much sense to me. And I'm going to butcher it, so you should repeat it again for me. But something along the lines of, um, <laughs> if if you don't tell your story, you're not giving somebody the opportunity to help you. I, I really think that's just really great insight because, uh, mm. yeah, I mean, people, there could be the most generous person right down the street. And if you've never introduced yourself, the, the person with exactly what you want, but they, and they're looking for someone to pass it on, but if they don't know that it's you, they'll, you'll never end up. So being vocal and, and intentional about your conversations and what you're doing and not in a pushy way, I'm sure you're not out yeah, banging right. down it's, doors looking for land, but. Right, right. It's just a natural kind of, if you're passionate about what you do, and many, many farmers are, and many, many farmers have the same motivation I do. They want to benefit their community and they want uh, to do good things and be a positive change in the world. But if you keep that to yourself, then there again, you're not providing an opportunity for someone to to help you along in your journey. So yeah, absolutely. There's lots of power in that for sure. Perfect. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm not sure if there was more to your farm story and I'll let you keep talking about that too, but where along the lines did you use some of the funding opportunities through NRCS? I know that has come up in conversation in the past that there's these great resources out there. Um, Have you been able to use some of them and in what ways on your farm have you used them? Yeah. Yeah. The NRCS program has been really great. And and there again, as I start this, I'll just bring it back to what I just said, telling your story. You know, I, I've been able to create a wonderful relationship with our NRCS technician who I've worked with um, since we started the farm because I was vocal about our mission and saying what we're doing, you know, because we're in a unique space where there's not a lot of agriculture happening in this space. It's traditionally not thought of as a food producing area. And so I'm able to come into the NRCS office and they get excited when I come in because we're farming, we're producing food. And my primary motivation for going and approaching NRCS in the first place was for their their equip and high tunnel program in particular, because there are other farmers that have accessed that cost sharing for tunnels before. And so I knew that that was a thing and I knew that a high tunnel was going to be absolutely critical to what we do. Um, so that was the first thing I did was I applied for a, uh, uh, a high tunnel through their equip program. It took about a year uh, for that application to go through and get processed, but then we were able to erect a, a high tunnel and, and this is its second year in production now. And that is, um, uh, oh, it's 30 by 96 is the square footage of that tunnel. And that's to- a huge game changer. Now we have about 600 tomatoes growing in there and about a hundred, no, maybe 60, 70 cucumbers growing in there. Wow. And so we're able to really do a good job growing those crops. Tomatoes do not want to grow here. They do not want to be outside. They don't want to be wet. They don't want to be cold. So we put them up in this tunnel and we, we, we trellis them up. Very common uh, thing to do in, in the high, with the high tunnel tomatoes like this. And, and now they're going to give us a beautiful crop this year. So Truly, that has been a, an amazing thing that that the high tunnel program through that through NRCS like that. But then the then the other way, because here again, I I tell my story and I and I say, here's what we're doing with this farm, and here's my goals overall with the farm. And then Gail says, uh, she's the NRCS officer, and she says, well, you should really look into the CSP program, the Conservation Stewardship Program, 
and it's a long shot, but you should just apply for it because you're already doing these, you know, your, these conservation practices on your farm. And I had never heard of that before. It's kind of, it was difficult to understand, but based on her advice, I just said, let's try it. And I applied for it. And basically what this is, it's taking, well, if EQIP, the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, if that is to provide cost sharing for a singular conservation practice on your farm, the CSP program is a way to kind of compensate you for a variety of practices over the course of time. So over the course of five years. So basically you go over and you look at all the things that you do on your farm that are conservation minded. So, you know, habitat for pollinators, a diversity of, of plants, uh, food producing plants on your property, or maybe you're doing implementing no-till or low-till practices in your field, or you're using cover crops, anything like this. You look at your current conservation practices that, that you're employing, and then you identify ways to make those better or take them to the next level. And once you get accepted into this, because it's kind of competitive, there's not enough funding to fund all the requests they have. So it ends up being kind of competitive. But once you're selected, basically you get a set rate compensation each year from NRCS over the course of five years. And then you get compensation kind of per practice you employ over those five years. So in a way you're being rewarded for being a good land steward for the things you're already doing. And then you are being provided kind of encouragement through financial compensation to continue those practices. And so just an an example of of what we're doing, because we were able to get accepted into this CSP program last year. So just a couple examples of then what we're going to implement are mulching more heavily in our field space. So this involved mulching our walking paths with wood chips to preserve moisture, stimulate microbial life, and also employing a better cover cropping system because we're finally getting the field space open that we need open. And now I can practice my rotations better and get more Mm -hmm. cover cropping incorporated into that. And we are increasing the diversity of food producing crops in our orchard space. We have uh, just about seven apple trees in our fence. And so now what we're going to do is, is put in an understory under those apple trees, which is going to consist of different medicinal herbs, uh, currants, and establish plantings of elderberry and hazelnuts hmm. within that field space. So we're just incre- increasing diversity and implementing or introducing um, um, native pollinator habitat. So increasing the diversity. We already have quite a bit of field space that's kind of more or less wild. It, we don't mow it. It's kind of, they are kind of prairie species that are native here. Um, but we're going to increase the diversity and intentionally increase the specimens that we don't have already. So, and how we were accepted into that, I don't know. Even Gail looked at me and said, I don't know how you made it. One thing that tipped us over the edge is that because they had so many people apply for this, they had to narrow down their selection um, and they had to come up with a metric by which to do that. And so they just, they took it and said, okay, and this is just 
Minnesota specifically. They said, let's just rule out all farms that do not have the Minnesota agricultural uh, water quality uh, certification program. Yes. If they're not, if they they don't have the water quality certification, then we'll just rule them out. And so we had just got that certification. (laughs) So we were somehow able to continue in the running like that. And we were able to be accepted for this program, which we're the only farm in the whole county that was able to do that. And even speaking with Carleton County folks, it's a very rare thing, especially in this area, especially with this type of farm we have. So I'm really hoping that I can use this by whatever way we made it in, use this as a way to kind of advocate for the types of farms that, you know, because we're not just the only ones doing this. There are many farms doing this. And in fact, the stewardship principles and practices are inherent to our operations. So it, in a way, it's like, it makes sense that we should be in this program. And, and, I, and I hope to kind of advocate for more small farms to get more priorities set aside for, for folks like us in this program too. So, And so maybe talk, just like your land navigators, you're not one to just sit back, take advantage of something, an opportunity, and, and then and then enjoy it. You wanted to get involved and help other people. Um, and so maybe talk briefly about the Conservation Connectors program and your involvement with that. Yeah, and this is another kind of grant opportunity that came my way um, being becoming a Conservation Connector. Yeah, and so this is a, a another great opportunity for basically to work in the same way uh, that I do as a land access navigator, wherein I can take on, and I'm just, I call them clients just because it's easier that way. Sure. Take clients of a beginning farmer who wants to apply for NRCS programs, but has never done so, doesn't know they exist, doesn't know anything about it, just assumes that the federal government is not there to help because of the type of farm they have. Um, and I can take them and walk them through just generally what it means, the programs, and help them apply, help kind of clear the, the confusion away. And, and in this way, introduce them to NRCS programs. And, the, and I mean, it's especially the high tunnel program. That's the thing that I get t- asked about the most is the high tunnel and it's not it's not a tunnel program. It's 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 one of the practices that equipped funds. And so many folks, because it's so cold up here and we have such a short growing season, the high tunnel is an extremely valuable thing for folks to apply for. So and it, and it dovetails very nicely with my land access navigator work because some of the clients from there they just bought farms. Well, now the next step is to apply for NRCS programs. So it's like I can kind of. I'm, I'm finding ways to kind of keep being part of their farm journey, yeah. you know, which, which is, which is great. And yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't make sense to try to hoard and compete. Uh, I mean, to me, it's like, let's, it's going to take so many more farms around here to provide a, a true farm economy and a, a truly resilient community that's supported by local farms. So to me, it's competition. I don't care about any of that stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. we need more farms here, more farms and whatever I can do to help people and help get that, achieve that. That's, that's my goal. So, yeah. So we're kind of wrapping up or pointing towards wrapping up here, running out of time. I want to respect your time as well as the listeners. And 
So you're involved with a bunch of these programs. If people want to get more information and talk to you about them, how would mm-hmm. they find you? How do they reach out? And what do they what do they do? Yeah, well, you can find uh, find me in various ways. Uh, <laughs> you can find me. Some folks find me on Facebook. I'm active on Facebook, John Beaton. Otherwise, you can find information about the Land Access Navigator Program on the Renewing the Countryside website. And that, in fact, Renewing the Countryside hosts information about land access navigation and the Conservation Connector Program. So mm-hmm. if you find Renewing the Countryside, you will find me. So yeah. 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 And your farm name, or your farm, do you have a farm website that people could go if they want to learn more about that? Absolutely. Yep. That is Fairhaven Farm. And uh, it's fairhaven.farm if you want to okay. find us on the on the internet there. So yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Um, is there anything else that you want to share either about your farm journey? And, and I wanted to make sure we got that contact information out. Uh, anything that we didn't cover on kind of your farm progression as to what you're doing now or any other last minute thoughts or share that you want to share with the listener? Yeah. Well, I can just, um, just talk a little bit about um, uh, the future of the farm. And yes, please. Really, that has a lot to do with my other advocacy work in these other places, Land Access Navigator and, and the Conservation conservation Connector, and um, also my involvement um, with our Lake Superior chapter of the SFA, and really realizing that there is a need for leaders in our agricultural kind of community and I'm happy to be that. I want to be that. And, and so really what we're trying to do now uh, is merge my ambition to benefit other farmers and help bring up other beginning farmers with our actual business of being a farm. And what that involves is um, creating a gathering space. So just after we bought the farm, the first thing we built was a giant pizza oven because we knew we wanted to do pizza. I love that. <laughs> now you're speaking my language. <laughs> well, we're so thankful that the infrastructure that we needed to grow vegetables was already here. And so we could say, let's build this oven. Emily worked on a farm that did pizza nights. And it was a wonderful thing for that business. They started scaling back on all their other stuff to have more events. So that has been an ambition since day one, since we landed here, was to be kind of a pizza farm or a gathering mm. space. But mm-hmm. that idea has evolved with mm, the work that I'm doing um, um, in terms of advocacy and organizing, because now instead of uh, pursuing a track where we want to sell the most pizzas we possibly can and, and be the biggest farm we possibly can, now we're shifting our focus and now we're saying, how can we lift up the entire farm community? We want to be this gathering space. Not all farms want that, but we do. And so how do we, how do we showcase the rest of our region's diverse farms? So we would like to host a, a you know, host kind of monthly pizza nights, mm-hmm. um, but also develop in tandem with that a farm store where we can showcase both our product, our fresh vegetables, the things we're good at growing, but also the product from other farms and, and be a, a real true farm store, not like a co-op that has a, pro, a nice produce section, but 90% of everything else in the store is from California still. I mean, it's still, it's just sure. kind of like processed type foods. Yeah. So we're going to be really specific and we're going to curate uh, a list of products that are 
truly the best of our region and help provide a market for other beginning farmers. And this involves building a building around this pizza oven. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of where we're at in our journey now. We're going to meet with an architect and find out, figure out financing and, and try to build that next year. And so we can use it as a gathering space, not only uh, for pizza nights, but also for hosting workshops, events, bringing landowners and beginning farmers together, showing our neighbors that live right around us, hey, there is ag potential here. There's farm potential here. There's vestiges of a farm economy surrounding us, but it hasn't been viable for years and years and years. And so when people step foot on here, depending on the person and where they're coming from, our goal is is to inspire people, inspire our neighbors to say, man, I should be growing a garden or I should be buying food from you or or other farms and inspire other farms and, and demonstrate kind of best practices so that other farms like us can pop up around here. So really our, our vision going forward revolves entirely around kind of taking all of what we have received and giving back. That's what we're trying to do. And, and really it's like, if that's the goal to give back, you cannot go wrong with any of that, you know? So yeah. We're excited about the future. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be awesome. And, and we've got a lot of support from a lot of people. So yeah, yeah, we're excited. Oh, that's awesome. I, I love it. It's, it's the coolest stuff. And I, I definitely got to get up there for a pizza night Sunday because, uh, well, I'm a big fan of pizza and I want to check out your place. Um, so thanks so much for sharing your story, John. I really appreciate it. And a reminder to everybody, if you want to find him, you can find him at Renewing the Countryside's website. He's also listed, I believe, on our staff page of Sustainable Farming Association, which is sfa-mn.org. Um, and you can find him on Facebook or Fairhaven Farm. Fairhaven.farm. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, John. Really appreciate you being on the call with me today. Great. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.